I think the reason I try to tell people to sketch is usually the field adjuster that's showing up can't submit his estimate to the carrier if it's not sketched. And I remember when I first started, they are just like, show me something. I'm just like, I need to show him something. Where can I show you? I couldn't figure it out. But, you know, as you get better, you know. But, yeah, you, the, help the adjusters help you help the client, you know. How is anybody going to know when they're reviewing this on the other side the accuracy of what you're writing? Right? You've got a room and you just labeled it living room and you're asking for 250 square feet of tile. Well, how do I know it's 250 square feet of tile? You've got no dimension. Hey, if I have a proof of loss to say $20,000 and things come up and we have to write for more, is that okay? I said, absolutely, that is okay. It's the other way around that you can't do it. You're making concessions for the betterment of the claim to get it settled for your client because cash's hand is better than waiting a year to get an extra two or three thousand dollars right not, so or not you're making or a up. smart decision for your client i mean i had the longest conversation yesterday with the desk adjuster because she's about to go on vacation and we were just laughing man just going back and forth and i mean we had you know we had a very pleasant conversation and frankly she got up to thirty-three thousand of my thirty-six thousand dollar estimate listen you you've got to be careful with estimates right i know that there's in some states that um if you make modifications to the pricing on that estimate and you don't have justification why you made that modification to that estimate, the state can actually charge you with fraud. Um, there's some states that will go that route. Um, and I know you're still working on trying to make sure that even if they invoke that right to repair, that the homeowner gets taken care of, right? You're still trying to do the right thing for the homeowner because maybe you didn't make what you were gonna make on this file, but by taking care of that person and making sure that they're taking care of property, guess what? That person's gonna refer you to somebody else. You're gonna refer you to somebody else and it's gonna pay dividends down the road because you did the right thing for the homeowner. What's up advocates? And welcome back to another episode of the Claims Game Podcast. Now, before I get into our very special guest, Mario Rios, uh, I just wanna let you know that we've got some really great sponsorship opportunities available right now. We've got different levels of sponsorships and you could be a sponsor of the Claims Game Podcast where we give you that shout out and let, you know, and let people know that you are the official sponsor of this podcast. We also have the Commercial Claims Show where we'll give you that same shout out before every single show. We've got the meetups that you could sponsor. We could put your uh, information on the website and we could also give you monthly shout outs on social media. So if you are interested in becoming an official sponsor of the Commercial Claims Advocate, uh, please reach out to me and reach out to us. Uh, you could find us on Facebook, on LinkedIn. You could send us a message online, uh, whatever you want. You could find out some more information on that on commercialclaimsadvocate.com um, to see if you could become an official sponsor. So yeah. All right, so today we've got Mario Rios on the show. Uh, Mario Rios is not only a colleague, but he's also a friend. Uh, we've been working together now. Uh, he's been in the business for about 13 years, same as me, uh, but we met at around 2017, um, and we've been working together ever since. He's a, he's a professional estimator, an expert estimator. Uh, he's the owner of Claim Preparation Experts. Uh, Mario has really been able to carve a niche out in regards to just being an estimator. He's not a public adjuster. He's just an estimator. It's what he does. He does estimates for the carrier. He does estimates for public adjusters. He does estimates for uh, attorneys. Uh, he's also a, he's also a state license appraiser 
and umpire. Uh, and not only that, but now he's also actually has been awarded the title uh, from a court order judge to uh, as an expert. He's an expert witness as well. So uh, he's just he's holds a lot of hats right now. And it's just basically because of the experience he's got in this industry for the last 13 years as as an estimator. It's really amazing. Um, super knowledgeable guy. Uh, like I, I use him for all of my estimates, especially in the Miami area. That's where he lives. Uh, but he does estimates all over the country, California, Texas, Indiana, North Carolina, Florida, everywhere. So uh, if, he's also an expert on our show, on our, on our, in our course. So if you were to take the commercial claims advocate course that we provide, he is one of the experts that we have on to talk shop about estimates about properly sketching, about properly scoping, about properly putting line items that you're supposed to put in when you're doing different things and you're replacing different stuff. So I think you're going to enjoy this. We talk about all of that stuff. We talk about arguments for different things and different line items, negotiating with the insurance company, what to put in, what not to put in, and the overall appraisal and umpire industry as well. So a really cool podcast, really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, when you get a chance, reach out to reach out to Mario. He's a tremendous help, a tremendous source for assistance. So uh, you could find Mario on Facebook. You could find Mario uh, probably on LinkedIn. And again, his name of his company is uh, Claims, Claim Preparation Expert. So uh, reach out to him. He's, he's always willing to help. So please enjoy the conversation with my man, Mario Rios. Welcome to the Claims Game Podcast with Vince Perry. Get all the tips you need from insurance claim advocates and professionals and grow your public adjusting career to the next level. And now the commercial claims advocate, Vince Perry. Mario. Good morning, buddy. That, that intro's got me a little hyped. That was nice. Did you like that? Yeah. Yeah, man. That's what you get. That's top dollar stuff on Fiverr. It's, a, it's really incredible. And you can have it done in less than five days. I like it. I like it. How you doing, man? Good, man. It's another day in a lovely rainy South Florida, which only means we're going to have more claims coming our way soon. Why does it rain so much in Miami? I moved to Tampa, and let me tell you something. It doesn't rain nearly as much in Tampa as it does in Miami. I don't get it. Well, when you guys get rain, it floods. Tampa floods really easy, I think. Um, right. Man, it was bad yesterday. Like, there was a couple of uh, warehouses where literally, like, the roofs went off, and they were modified bit. Uh -huh. So I'm not talking and? shingles. And, you know, those are always the hardest to get to fly off. There was a couple places yesterday. They even think there was a, a tornado touchdown. So, Dude, we're, where's the referrals, bro? Let's go. Let's get I, this I, thing It just happened yesterday. I mean, when they come in, you got to give it 24 hours, right? But this is true. Yeah, there was some stuff going down yesterday. What, what kind of wind speeds are we talking about? Do you know? I, I don't know. But it, there must have been some good gusts, truthfully, because it was all over the news last night, man. It was a, when I walked out of the courthouse yesterday, it was a, a fun drive back from Broward. Uh, to Dade County, it was pouring. Look, you talk about flooding. I mean, it's it's a fact. South Beach is going to be underwater probably in ten years, without a doubt. Maybe before that. I was looking that. Have you seen that the flash flood that they have like every year? It's like every year that's a rising tide that comes up and it covers all of South Beach. So I I did a claim for an attorney. I don't remember who the attorney was because you know I did for so many. Um, on Purdy Avenue on South Beach. I know you know Purdy because of Purdy Lounge and all that kind of stuff. Oh, good times. Um, good years times. Years ago, the city of Purdy Miami Lounge. Beach actually um, fixed the drain line 
uh, you know, the drain issue because they always used to flood there so bad. I remember so when they were fixing it. What a mission driving through that place. Okay, well, when the city did that, they actually raised the street elevation, right? So they had one of those major floods that occurred, and a lot of the businesses in that area flooded out. Well, the carrier, they put in these claims for flood claims. When the carriers came out, they said, hey, these businesses are now below grade. That's not what you're insured for. You never advised us that the street level changed. So the carriers denied all the claims because they said that the businesses were now basements. There was exclusions for basements on the policies and they blamed the city for raising the street elevation and not advising the businesses that they needed to contact their carriers to advise them that there was a change of grading on wait, the classification of the businesses. Wait a minute, wait a minute. If anything, you're mitigating it though, right? I mean, you're, I mean, not mitigating because mitigating is after a loss occurs, but at least you are, you know, doing what you can to prevent further damage in case something happens. That's crazy. Yeah, so I what? Mean, they so hold on. In, they ended up in litigation from what I know, but the carrier's position was, you know, we, we insured street level businesses. You raised the street a foot and a half and you've now for unintentional purposes created below grade businesses that we were never advised that was the case. So now that they're basements, that doesn't make any sense. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the position the flood carrier took on all the claims. Everything first, that happened there got denied. First of all, that's complete bullshit. Second of yeah, all, yeah. the other part I, mean, I hear you. I mean, I get where they're coming from, but it's also, you know, complete and utter BS. Like I was the, you know, the business owner supposed to control what the city's doing with the grading outside. That's BS. And the fact that you would raise the streets instead of putting some form of barrier, like a little dam or something to stop the water from rising. I mean, that's the best way to do it. I don't understand why they want to raise the streets because all that commotion that I believe was going on for about two years. Every time I had a claim in South Beach, it was just the worst driving through Alton Road. Was it Alton or was it? Yeah, it was Alton, right? It was Alton, the entire connection. But on Alton, they didn't raise the street level. On the Purdy Avenue Street, they did because they put in larger drains. I think to accommodate the fact that there was a couple of buildings coming in as well. So they actually increased the size of the, of the street drains. Now, in order to accommodate those, they ended up having to raise the street level. That's, that's dumb. So yesterday there was 26 mile per hour gusts. We had an average of about 15 mile per hour winds in Miami yesterday. I think the bulk the bulk of it was up in like the Broward Pembroke Park area. Well, yeah, I mean, I put in my my home address, my my mom's house address. I don't know what zip code it is up there in Broward, but I just put in where I used to live. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't understand. If Miami is just like brutal. Every time I go there, it just rains every yeah. single. We got eighty percent chance of rain today, so you know these roofs are going to start leaking again. Oh my goodness, yeah. No, here it's not that bad. Honestly, I don't know if it's just because we're in the West Coast. We're right here in the Gulf. We're just, I don't understand. But no, it's really not that bad. It's a lot of sunny days. I mean, we had a drought just until last week. It seems like it scoots past you guys and then goes up to like New Orleans, Texas, and that kind of stuff. 1908 was the last time Tampa had a severe storm. 1908. If anything, though, that means Tampa's due. 
guess I'll have to make the drive over to keep you uh, keep you on your toes. Oh, it's going to be off the chain. If there is a storm <laughs> in Tampa with the connections that I've made over the last, what, three and a half years, it's going to be pretty crazy. But honestly, at, at this point, um, with everything that we've got going on, right, I've got the course, I've got all the social media stuff, I've brought you in on the ride to, to, to really, like, you know, have some fun with this. I think we're getting some pretty good recognition where it gets to the point where if we do get a storm in Florida – Woo, it's going to be a lot busier than Irma was. I mean, Irma, I was swamped, but I think I, it's going to be double that. Man, I was swamped with Irma. With Irma, I mean, as you know, we usually do like 20 to 40 a week. After Irma hit, I was getting 20 or 30 requests a day. I was getting 10 um, a day. It, it was it was pretty insane, like to the point where I, you know, and I've got, I've got staff, you know, as you know, it's not just me. So I've got employees that are running around. And I, at the time, there was six of us running around, uh, you know, documenting losses, going to property, sketching them to get ready to write the estimates. And it still wasn't enough uh, for the amount of requests that we were getting on a daily basis. I turned down business uh, from, you know, law firms and adjusters because we couldn't, we couldn't keep up the volume. I consider myself a pretty healthy eater, but when you're handling a storm, there's, n there's no time. Not the only time you have is for McDonald's or Burger King. Yep. Yeah. It, it, and see, I'm, I'm not as healthy of an eater, but I'm a, I, I can't bring food with me. My wife makes fun of me all the time. I don't like to eat cold food. Like if we made something the night before, I'm not taking that out for lunch the next day because I'm on the road. I'm not going to get to heat it, right? So it's you're right. You end up just like grabbing whatever five-minute meal you can so you can just keep running around. I mean, I know on the estimating side of stuff, I think the most I did in one day after the hurricane, I think I did like 10 houses in one day, and it was complete and utter overkill you know we were everybody was doing anywhere between five to six houses a day i did 10 one day and it was like insane and it's always in the middle of the heat of the summer brutally hot brutally humid absolutely ridiculous i remember i had a pair of jeans on the first day never wore those jeans again because it was just I bought a new pair of yeah. jeans for triple the price because I knew it would be more flexible, more breathable. And I just chose to wear shorts a lot of the days because after a while, it's you just guys, so hot. You guys make fun of me. I wear my Lululemon, you know, pants. So it's almost like wearing shorts, yeah. you know. I know, you guys. I didn't even know they made that, that stuff for men. But it's the most comfortable thing when you're getting up on roofs all day and you still kind of look professional in your polo, you know. Yeah, it's just fancy, man. Lululemon is fancy, you know. I mean, you got you got to get to a certain status before you can start shopping at Lululemon, you know. Well, I know you guys make fun of me. I'll be, I think Rico was shocked to find out they even made men's clothes. Oh, no, I knew it. I knew it. My mom had bought me – my mom is so funny. My mom had bought me a, a shirt from Lululemon, and I was like, man, this is really comfortable. So the first thing I did was I went over there, and I looked at their pants, and I bought a couple pairs of pants there too because they're just incredible. Yeah. Super breathable, very stretchy. Very, very expensive as well, but very nice. Yeah, but I mean, you know, unless you, you go to the sales rack, you got to be comfortable. Yes, yes. Unless you go to the sales rack. So, what's up, expert? So, a lot of people say that they're experts. A lot of people promote that, hey, I can be your expert witness, but never have really even been a freaking expert. You, however, my friend, are officially an expert when it comes to estimating and claims. Tell me about your most recent experience as an expert in trial. Yeah, it, well, it was, uh, I guess, I've called myself an expert in the past, as you said, right? And uh, it was actually confirmed by the court now that I could be uh, considered and call myself a scope and damages expert. Um, I think I've written 
almost 7,000 estimates in the 13 or 14 years that I've been doing this. As you know, I do them for both sides because some of my clients do carrier work. So I've been deposed a time or two um, in my time. So I think, you know, I get like one subpoena a week at my office. So I've had a lot of depositions. Things have never, in every case I've ever been involved in, they've gotten settled. So I've never actually had to testify. Um, but yeah, I got my first experience, uh, my past, what's called a, a Dalbert hearing, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, where the carrier actually tried to disqualify me from testifying. Um, the carrier tried to remove me as the, as the expert on behalf of the plaintiff. But, you know, they went before the judge. The judge agreed that I had the experience and the expertise to, to comment on the scope and damages portion of the estimate for the, uh, the law firm. And uh, it was an experience. I, I think it was kind of like a, a deposition on steroids is, is the best way that I could describe it. Because uh, now you're dealing with, you know, if you're getting deposed, the most common thing that happens is you get objected to form in terms of the question, right? Just the most common thing you see in a deposition. Um, but when you're in the actual courthouse, you know, you're getting both sides are kind of throwing stuff at you. You're trying to, if you got the judge interrupting you, you got the jury sitting there watching you that you're trying to connect with to see if they understand your explanation of why something's on an estimate. So, um, yeah, I was on the stand for about an hour and a half yesterday. And, um, you know, I think it went well. I think I, I got my points across. There was really nothing major that the carrier's attorney was able to uh, dispute in terms of the uh, damages that I had on my estimate. Uh, I think, again, the, the biggest glaring thing that they kept trying to argue about was that I wrote a roof for a certain number and they, the insured ended up actually spending less than what I wrote. So, you know, it was not anything really of, of substance, to be honest with you, because at the end of the day, anybody can get a deal uh, when they actually go to do the work. So, but it was an experience. And yeah, I can actually, you know, I, I can bill now for every time anybody wants to depose me, which is extra nice. You know, I've got some law firms that always used to, to get me paid as well. But now I have a, uh, an hourly rate that's confirmed by the court that I'm allowed to charge for any of those depositions and or my, my expert witness now, uh, if anybody wants me to actually testify, I have an hourly rate that the court allows me to charge now as well. That's fantastic. That's pretty cool. Moving up in the yeah. world, man. Move, I said you're moving up in the world, huh? Slowly, slowly but surely, yeah. So it's what's really funny, like I said, I've been doing this for 13 years. I've never testified in court. Um, I've got four coming up in the next like month and a half that are scheduled to go to trial. Um, it's all of a sudden, like, you know, with the COVID stuff going away, some of these floodgates have opened and attorneys are getting trial dates. So right. I've got four that are coming up in the next like month and a half where potentially I've never done it in 13 years. And all of a sudden I've got four in a month. So in this, in this case, where was your estimate for the, for the policyholder or for the carrier? Uh, it was for the policyholder. Um, the carrier went out, I believe admitted coverage but said that the coverages were under deductible, um, denied the roof and the interior saying that there was no wind created opening, um, paid for some exterior stuff, paid for 10 fencing posts, but nothing else related to the fence. Um, Wait a minute, it paid for the fencing post, but didn't pay for the actual fence. Yeah, so what the post, you know, the post fell and they could be magically reinstalled without apparently having to touch the, the slats on the fence, which is news to me. I've never seen that done before, but- Is there at least a detach know? and reset on the slats? Not even. Nope, not even nothing. that, the, which the is slats, bullshit too. The, the rest of the fence did not exist. The posts got damaged, but nothing else. All the posts? Uh, 10 posts 
on the back and side of a fence got damaged, but nothing else happened to the fence. It also didn't help that um, the meteorology reports showed that there was 75 mile an hour winds, sustained winds for 46 hours at the property. Is this an Irma claim? An Irma claim that there's been litigation. And, but they said, no, hey, this was, uh, there's no wind related damages at the property and there was no wind created opening. Um, I mean, they're in trial today again. Uh, today's the third day of trial. I think they're going, the corporate rep for the insurance company was testifying today. And I think the rebuttal engineer was testifying today as well. So, you know, it's still in process. We're, we're going to find out later this week what happens. I'm just surprised that they let something like that drag out for this long and taking it all the way to trial. 13 years I've been doing this, Mario. I've never been to trial. Yeah, again, I, I, as, as I said, I've never been to trial. I mean, some guys make a living out of going to trial. But yeah, most things settle, I think when you get to a reasonable number, but uh, the carrier's position the whole time was that there was no one created opening. It's interesting because when we, you know, we prepared for the, uh, the trial, right? I mean, I've got about 12 hours of trial prep that went into reviewing documents, going over reports. Nice. 12 hours of trial um, prep. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to work. I, but, you know, I'll be honest with you. I worked on a Saturday. I worked on a Sunday, you know, it like, it interrupted your, your day-to-day family time, right? So I think you should be compensated for having to do that. I know the the attorneys that are actually trying the case for the last week, they've been they've been at the office till two o'clock in the morning. You know, they're in court in the morning, and then afterwards they're going back, reprepping, repositioning themselves, and they're at the office till two or three in the morning while the trial's going on. So it's and they had the entire weekend of trial prep as well with engineers, the witnesses, the homeowner. I wonder. So it, it, it's pretty elaborate to see the the process, right? You're almost uh, getting to look behind the veil, so to speak, as to what goes into going through all of an actual trial. So uh, it was interesting. It was it was an, it was a good experience. Um, but yeah, some of it just doesn't make sense to me at all as to why they would uh, not have settled this. Yeah, that's a little weird. This seems like the kind of case that should have settled. Um, I'm assuming that your argument for having an estimate that was higher than was than what the insured actually paid was just, Frank, it's, it's an estimate. It is what it is. It's not an actual solid number. And he probably didn't replace the roof until a year or two or three or four years later anyway. So prices are different. Uh, and part was that. Part of it as well is, you know, listen, at the end of the day, we all use our different softwares to write. As you know, I write for both sides. So I write on Xactimate and I write on Civility which are the two most common softwares used in the industry. Um, and they're softwares that give you an estimated value, right? It's not set in stone. That software doesn't know day-to-day the roofing company that might come and offer you a deal because guess what? They're doing 10 roofs in that neighborhood and they're trying to pick up an extra one. And for them at that stage, an extra roof doesn't have the same potential uh, cost because they're already working in the neighborhood. So you might be able to get a deal from that person. Um, but that's one of the, the factors that we put into it. And at the end of the day, I don't make up what the price is, right? We get the price for that roof based on the software pricing that's provided to us by the software, Xactimate or Simbidity. It's based on the squares and it's based on what the average cost is in that area by the zip code and by that month. So, you know, they, they harped on the price, but really it was a, a meaningless argument, to be honest with you. It was not, hey, well, wouldn't, why wouldn't you change it to $8,500? I said, well, once I found out that they did only spend 8500 bucks, if I was asked to revise the estimate, we would have revised it. I think it was something that was conceded the entire time that that number is no longer applicable because they revi- they've already spent $8,500. At right, no point was... in time did anybody say, 
oh, we're arguing still, we want the additional $7,000. It was a moot point, was one of, the, one of the answers that I gave them. I said, so you never asked for it to be revised. Right, right. And I'm sure, like you said, it was already in negotiation talks, in, in pre-settlement talks or settlement talks. I'm sure it was already conceded anyway to say, okay, look, yeah, we've got an invoice and this is how much it was paid. No big deal. Well, you know, that's, that's what it is. We'll concede to that number. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's interesting. So you said it's a, you said it's a deposition on steroids. Cause I remember, I mean, now obviously depositions are, are, they just are what they are. Uh, but you know, I remember my first deposition and maybe my second deposition where it didn't go as well as I wanted it to go. I mean, it went fine, but I was very nervous. I don't know yeah. if I was sweating or not, but I thought it was, I thought it was, uh, you know, it was a difficult thing and I'm always talking to new adjusters and I'm letting them know, like, don't worry, relax, be confident. It's a good claim. You have a good claim. You're not committing any kind of fraud. You're not doing anything bad. It's just a sort of, it's just, it's just a, 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 a part of the process in litigation that you have to just go in there, complete your deposition, knock it out and be done with it. So, um, it was, it was nerve wracking, huh? It was, I mean, I remember my first one. I mean, I've probably got hundred depositions now under my belt, uh, to be frank. So I'm no longer nervous about them. I mean, they're kind of like, I literally show up, I'm like, Hey, good morning, you know, and go through my entire spew. Right. So it's, it's something I'm used to, but like you said, there, I still know a lot of uh, adjusters that are scared to do uh, depositions. You know, they're not, uh, they're not ready for them. They're, they're afraid that they're going to say something in that deposition. That's going to be detrimental to their case. Um, I'll be honest, Understandably I've got so. attorneys that have asked me to be deposed instead of the adjuster because the adjuster doesn't want to get deposed. And I wrote the estimate. Mm -hmm. So they're asking Mario, hey, listen, the case is going to fall apart. If we don't have somebody get deposed. The adjuster, for all intentional purposes, is avoiding being served the subpoena. And I've had attorneys that have been like, hey, I need you to get deposed. I used to, uh, I, used to I, don't, I don't remember his name. The guy, he would always meet me in Coral Gables to serve me. And always the same guy. I can't remember his name because this was back in Miami. And it was always the same. And then uh, just the other day, I had some guy. Uh, I was doing a podcast, I think. I was doing something. And there was some guy outside of my house just standing around, standing around, looking around. My wife drives in and she sends me a text. She's like, there's some guy that's just here standing around. I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know. So finally, I finished the podcast. I went outside and it was just to serve me. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the nice things about, you know, having the office, right? They don't bother me at home. Uh, we've got somebody who just accepts my subpoenas on a regular basis since I get so many. Um, it's one of the main reasons I have an office and don't work from home uh, is that you want not, you know, because they'll just come and linger by your house all day long to try to serve you. But I mean, at the end of the day, I tell people all the time when they got to, you know, do these depositions and, and stick to what you know, right? If you don't know, you don't know. I think a lot of times, in depositions where people get themselves in a little bit of trouble is they start answering questions and making just assumptions, right? Oh, I think it was this, right? Th Listen, if you don't know what it is, say, I don't know. That's it. And guess what? They got to accept that as your answer. Exactly. Um, so, I, I mean, I, now that I've done so many, I've never, truthfully, I have one already, I have one scheduled for Friday. <laughs> and I've had two depositions and, and testimony this week. It's, it's one of those weeks where you're like, I feel like I'm not accomplishing anything. You know, because I'm spending more time uh, behind the computer or arguing with uh, proving my point. But how many how many people you have on the team now, Mario? Um, we we always have at least three employees on staff. I've got somebody in Orlando. Um, I've got somebody that handles stuff in Broward. Um, I've got somebody that will do stuff for me on the West Coast of Florida. Um, I obviously take care of Dade. 
and I'm the one that does any of the traveling outside of those areas that need to, to happen. Um, what usually happens is I've got relationships with general contractors. Um, so for example, when Irma hit, all work ceased, right? All construction projects for all intentional purposes stopped. Um, so what typically happens is when a storm hits, I usually then can tap into three or four general contractors that for all intentional purposes, work stops for them for a month or two. And I use them as uh, additional resources to be able to get to all the properties that we need to get to. That's smart, man. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way to do it. And, you know, you build relationships, as you know, that's what part of this business is just that building a relationship. And, um, I got into this many, many years ago because I realized that you as an adjuster need a, an estimate, right? You contact the general contractor to write you your estimate uh, for the damages. And what you get back is apples and oranges. Most general contractors will just tell you, you know, we're going to charge you five grand to do the tile in your house, right? They're not breaking it down per room, per trade, per this, per that. So what ends up happening is when you go to turn that over to the carrier, the carrier tells you, oh, I don't know what that's for. That's just too generalized of a, of a number. So we're not going to agree to it because we don't know what that breakdown is for. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I got into this side of the industry. I saw nobody was really doing this, right? So I learned how to write it apples to apples and write it so that when I'm writing my estimate at the end of the day, it's going to be the equal number that that contractor is giving it to you at. But when you go to compare it now, it's written in the format the insurance company writes. And that's all it is. The insurance company just wants to use that as an excuse to not be able to write it the way you want it. Pretty much. Why, why'd you get into this and you didn't become a PA? You know, I, I worked for a public adjuster for two years. Okay. I saw the process. I saw that there was a niche. I saw that I could do more of the estimating and appraisal work, which I think the appraisal aspect of this industry is, um, frank with you, quite easier. You know, it's, it's at the end of the day, when you're in appraisal, both parties are there to kind of just find a way to make this get resolved, right? Um, it's less combative. I, I've learned over the years that um, the adjusters just on the daily stuff, when they're having to deal with getting the claim approved, that the, the monogamy of all of that, you're dealing with guys that show up at these properties sometimes that really have no, no say into what's going to happen. Those guys are coming out and they're completely at the mercy of whatever an inside examiner tells them they have to put on their estimate. Um, the case that I testified in yesterday, part of the, the issue is that the adjuster claims that the estimate that was finalized and presented to the homeowner was not his estimate. So uh, that adjuster is stating that he wrote an estimate and the estimate was modified by the carrier. There you go. It was probably chopped up. Correct. And the carrier is stating that that estimate is work product and they're not releasing it even in litigation. I got that email the other day. I'm like, uh, so uh, could you please send me a copy of the engineering report that you guys did? Uh, I'm sorry, we're not allowed to release that. That's work product. I'm like, wait a minute. How would you like right. it if you're a homeowner? Don't you want, actually no, it was a mold person that they sent out. I'm like, the client wants to know if she's got mold in her house. Could you do me a favor and send that to me? Oh, that's work product. We're not allowed to release that. That's right. not the most gangster move. I mean, I don't know what is. I, yeah, I don't know either. And I, I don't even know. I don't understand how that can be allowed in court. You know, like at the end of the day, I get it. But when you're in trial and everybody's got to show their cards, so to speak, I don't get how you can just say that what we wrote that we modified is not admissible in court. It's not even in work product as to how we operate our business. Not even in discovery? Not even in discovery. What they ultimately do is turn in uh, redacted parts of the, of the photographs. 
And yeah, they don't have to turn it in. And, and it's protected by Florida law, which is crazy. I wouldn't be surprised if the field adjuster actually wrote the fence. I wouldn't be surprised if the field adjuster wrote more than that. So apparently the field adjuster wrote interior damages, but then the carrier advised that they did not see a wind created opening in the roof right. and has, and everything was removed off the estimate. Right. And it's, it's wild because in the actual, I think they messed up. And when they submitted part of their discovery, they submitted the photos that the field adjuster took, but did not retract the actual notes. So on some of the pictures that was submitted in as part of discovery, the field adjuster wrote wind created <laughs> crack to the window or wind created this in some of the photographs. That's funny. So the field adjuster acknowledged that there was wind based on his observations, but then everything else got removed except for the fence. I just, I don't understand somehow that they're able to get away with some of this stuff. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, but that, I mean, so kind of, I, I stumbled upon this, right? I was doing it for uh another public adjuster. I worked with them for about two years. Um, I got in with one of the attorneys and I kind of just started to see that this industry was shifting. And this was back in 2011. Um, and I just saw that more and more stuff was ending up at attorney's offices. Um, and these attorneys at times were also signing up claims themselves. And truthfully, when the attorney signs up that claim, great, he's got it. But now the attorney doesn't know what damages are. He, he doesn't know what the numbers are. Right. Um, and a lot of times they hire an engineer to be able to come up with that number. But truthfully, usually an engineer is pretty expensive. Very expensive. Um, and, I, and I saw that there was a void. You know, not, not all of these files require an engineer. Um, and I saw that there was this void where contractors are usually too busy, sometimes can be too flaky, write it in the format that the carrier didn't like. Um, and I just saw, boom, I, I could do this and, and maximize on it. And then through that, um, I had already been doing appraisal work for that public adjuster. Because they, they were pretty busy at the time. Um, and I got thrown into the wolves, so to speak. And just, hey, Mario, we got 10 appraisal files we need you to handle. Like, just go and argue about the damages. Um, initially, it was with opposing appraisers that they were comfortable with. You know, it wasn't somebody that they didn't know. They knew they were going to treat me fair. And I, I did the, the smartest thing I think I did with getting involved in this industry is I asked questions to the guys on the other side. And a lot of times we talked about this in the past, people look at the opposing appraiser or the opposing adjuster as an adversary. And they are to a certain extent, right? They're there to protect the carrier's interest and minimize their exposure and so on and so forth. But they're not necessarily bad guys now, right? So if you start to talk to them, you, you learn, hey, here's some of the things that the carrier will approve. And if we can paint it the claim in this fashion, it will help us get you paid. Um, well, that's the I, thing is that I was explaining that to somebody yesterday um, that we have to look at it in a different light. It was a new adjuster and she's like, look, uh, what did she say? She says, um, he's asking for a document that I already provided him. Um, I think he's just delaying. I said, no, I said, maybe not. Maybe he's asking for the document because maybe he didn't get it or maybe he wants to look at it again. Maybe he actually wants to review it because maybe he, maybe he's now considering actually paying the claim. And then I had another adjuster was like, uh, the reinspection, the dates that they were trying to schedule was going back and forth and they couldn't figure out a date. And then he texts me and he's like, I think that they're delaying here. I said, dude, if he wants to go out and do a reinspection, let him do a reinspection. Reinspections are good because that means they're actually going to reinspect to see if there's anything additional that they could pay. I've never gotten less payment 
after a reinspection or after an appraisal. It's always going to be more. So it's like, no, dude, schedule it, find the time, get the reinspection done so that you can go ahead and do it. And like you said, these are people. I'm a, I like people for me. I know a lot of people hate other people because, you know, people suck sometimes. But for the yeah. most part, for the most part, I'm a firm believer that 99.9% of people are good. I do, deep inside. Some of them may have personal issues. Some of them may have childhood issues. Some of them may have issues at home. Some of them, may, maybe it's just a bad day. But deep inside, most people, and I'm talking 99% of people, in my opinion, are good. If you could find a way when you meet an appraiser, a field adjuster, or you talk to a desk adjuster on the phone, you could find a way to tap into that. I have found that I get much further and I settle for more just by saying, hey, I mean, I had the longest conversation yesterday with a desk adjuster because she's about to go on vacation. And we were just laughing, man, just going back and forth. And I mean, we had, you know, we had a very pleasant conversation. And frankly, she got up to 33000 of my $36,000 estimate. What else could you ask for, right? Like, and it's, and it's a matter of Again, when we all start in this industry, we make mistakes. We don't know the right arguments to make, right? right. We're, and that's part of why people, I think, are, are taking your course because they see that there's the value to saying, hey, I am, I'm going to learn from somebody that's been doing it longer, right? It, it puts you in an environment where you're potentially not afraid to ask those questions because there's always that fear. You don't want to seem um, unprepared or like, if you don't know what you're doing or something of that nature. So people sometimes have that natural fear to ask for help or ask for questions. Um, so that's why I think the, the class is so great because it's a stress-free environment. You can ask away. No one's going to judge you for asking. And the truth is nine out of 10 times that question you're asking, somebody else has already encountered it. Hey, here's what we did when we had that problem, you know, or here's how I worked it around on this claim. And maybe this will help you figure it out with that adjuster. Um, and, and I think that's part of the, the beauty of this industry. We don't have to be combative. There's going to be plenty of times that we don't agree. That's okay. Hey, if I've got my facts and I know what transpired and I've got the way to document it and I've got my pictures and I have my right team with the mitigation guy, the attorney, I mean, whatever it is that we need to build and, and, and prepare my claim properly, at the end of the day, whether it's the desk, the inside examiner, the field adjuster, the appraiser, or the umpire, someone's going to ultimately go, yeah, that makes sense. And you got to push the process to get to that point. And at no point in time, the more you frustrate yourself by thinking the other side is your enemy, it's just going to take you longer to get there. I had a negotiation with a desk adjuster. He started off at $1,000 and I'm at like, I'm at like 40, I think. And I'm just like, he's like, but I want to get this resolved. And he goes up to like five. And I'm like, Sam, I thought you said you wanted to get this resolved. Like, what right. are you calling me to negotiate and resolve this thing? Or are you just like, what's the point? And we ended up getting 30, you know, and we were just joking around. That's all we were doing. We were, look, we were going through the estimate. He's like, I don't agree with this. And I agree with that. I'm like, well, here's why you should agree with it. I said, but I said, if you want to take a little bit off of this, like the generals, the freaking generals is always the one, right? You don't deserve any of those generals. I'm like, all right, well, I mean, well, what if we cut that supervisor uh, hours in half? You know, what if we cut that dumpster, you know, to a smaller dumpster? I'm not going to remove it because you know, as well as I do, that it may need to be used. And if it is, and I signed this release today, now my client's going to be mad at me. So we need to kind of find a way to come to a middle ground here. And, and that's one of the, right. I, I mean, and that's something that the desk is that inside examiners, desk adjusters sometimes don't want to agree to that. I, I always tell PAs, listen, you know, if you have appraisal and you have alternate routes that you can get the finalization of the claim, 
just make sure that you get your claim approved, right? I always tell the PA your, your, your initial $1. inspections, your initial whatever. Heck, but sometimes not even a dollar. You get an under deductible letter. That's fine. That means the carrier's admitted that there's damage, yeah. right? Then it's a matter of figuring out the valuation and the actual cost of those damages. So I tell people all the time, I said, listen, you get a dollar over the deductible, carrier's admitted damage. You get an under deductible letter. The carrier's admitted damage. Disclaimer, yes, please. People have asked me, oh, it's under deductible. Does that mean it was covered? Yes, absolutely. Just because it's under deductible, that actually, it's it's covered. That means it's a covered loss, so you're good. You could still go to appraisal. You could still uh, negotiate with the desk adjuster and keep going further. Yeah, you can still request a supplement. You can still request a reinspection, like you said, right? So it's part of the dance. And, and just know that, like you said, a reinspection isn't always a bad thing. It means, hey, it ended up back at that adjuster because someone's reconsidering what you kept asking for and they either want to validate it. Yeah, they might be there trying to negate it, but you got a 50-50 shot now, right? Because they're coming back to look at it. I think you and I, though, I think we take for granted of the experience that we've got and the confidence that we've got when we go into these inspections or these depositions or these appraisals that is sort of like, like on a subconscious level in a way. For example, I had a reinspection for, well, we did that. You did the estimate for me on that one. The, um, the co uh, apartment, uh, the one in Hialeah, the, uh, the townhomes. Oh yeah. 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 Did that's the right. I remember when you went back for the reinspection. I did the reinspection for that one and I brought along a sort of newer adjuster and, you know, hit it off with the guy. We're just talking shop. We're like, literally, we're not arguing at all, but we're just agreeing to disagree on different things. I'm like, that's cool. That's fine. But I need this. I need that. Bum, 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 bum. After the inspection, he's just like, dude, that was amazing. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. All I did You're was- You're like, what was? You're like, what just, was amazing? I just that's my, that's talk, how we handle these things. I just talked to him like a completely normal person. Because again, he's a normal guy who's had to take time out of his day. I mean, he's getting paid for it. But, you know, I, I mean, let's get along. Let's figure this out. Let's work together. And like I was saying earlier, the field adjusters, which is what I was explaining to somebody. I don't think I finished my thought on that. The field adjusters, and I guess the desk adjusters, but the, mainly the field adjusters, they're just like, show me something. Please show me something, anything like I'm here. Help I'm, me help you. I'm a, I'm again, I'm a person and I do want to help the person in the home or in the building. So if you show, if you can't show me any damage, what am I going to do? Like, and I remember when I first started, they're just like, show me something. I'm just like, I need to show them something. Where can I show you? Know, I couldn't figure it out. But you know, as you get better, you know, but yeah, you the, help the adjusters help you help the client. You know, well, I remember, I, I think you called me either from there or right after you left and you were like, Hey, send me the ESX. Why? Right? Because I'm making like, his like, imagine if he had to build that thing from scratch. I know I'm the one that built it from scratch. It would have taken him a couple hours to be there with you that day. So he was happy as can be that you were willing to help him have all the dimensions, have an estimate that was accurate got, in terms got, of, you know, I, I tell people all the time, sketch right i mean you and i have talked about this so many people just write an estimate i get peer review stuff from attorneys sometimes and it's just like they turn in an estimate to the carrier and it's two or three line items or they've got rooms with no dimensions you know and, and, and the way they, they 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 box it up or they don't and i'm just like how is anybody gonna know when they're reviewing this on the other side the accuracy of what you're writing right? You've got a room and you just labeled it living room and you're asking for 250 square feet of tile. 
Well, how do I know it's 250 square feet of tile? You've got no dimensions. I've got no length times width times. I got nothing. Nothing, right? So when you submit that to somebody, it's a paperweight. It's that. It's going straight in the shredder. They're not looking at that. There's no, there's no value for them to compare it to. So you've given something in that's useless. Why do you think, so I know you've said this before, you think that at least at the very bare minimum, you think public adjusters, if they're going to hire an estimator, should know how to scope and should know how to sketch. Do you really think sketching is that important or is, are you good enough with the scope as an estimator? Um, as an estimator, I've been doing it long enough that you can, I can do it off either one, right? So you give me dimensions, I can, make, I can write anything you need in that room, um, obviously. So that's, that doesn't matter. I think the reason I try to tell people to sketch is usually the field adjuster that's showing up can't submit his estimate to the carrier if it's not sketched. Uh. So the carrier, no matter what that field adjuster does, if he does not submit a sketch with his estimate, he gets a rejection back from the carrier. I know this because I write carrier estimates. So anything that we write for the carrier has to be on sketch. So if I just give them dimensions, the estimate immediately gets rejected by the, the desk adjuster and it is, it's not valid. So that's why I tell people to learn to sketch because it adds the value that you can potentially submit that to the field adjuster and make that interaction on site a little bit easier. Because at the end of the day, now the field adjuster is not gonna have to potentially sketch the entire property again. Um, some guys still do, some guys tell you, hey, no, I have to do it. Okay, cool. Everybody's got their process, right? But you're now trying to bridge that gap. And it's something really simple. It's like, hey, look, if you want the, uh, the ESX, I've got it for you. You know, if you want to verify dimensions, I've had appraisal files where I show up and I offer the guy the ESX and he'll come in and say, well, let me just verify it to make sure that the, the dimensions are okay. I don't take offense. Yeah, hey man, no problem. I jokingly tell people, I'm like, look, if I'm off, it's by an inch or two, but you know, if a room's 15 feet, I'm not writing it for 25. Because at the end of the day, someone's going to verify it. So all you're doing is creating a false number, right? So we try to make the estimate accurate so that you could use it and everybody involved can use it. Um, and that's one of the reasons these guys want you to do it on sketches because they can't use it otherwise. Yeah. So I think at a, I think at a bare minimum, I think at a bare minimum adjusters, there's too many PA companies. And I know this because the first company I worked for, we had like two or three estimators that worked in-house independent contractors or whatever. And, uh, you know, they would do everything for us. And after I left that company, I didn't know how to do shit. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I didn't know how to do. Oh, and then the owner did the appraisals. There was somebody there doing the initial inspections. Basically all I was, was a sales guy. And there's a lot of compartmentalized. There's a lot of PA companies that are like that, which you can't blame them. If you're an owner of a PA company, I mean, it's great. If you can hire somebody just to do the initial inspections, who's a licensed PA, who's, who's, who's experienced. If you can hire somebody to do the estimates, if you as the owner could handle all the appraisals because you're the one with the more experience um, and you just hire a bunch of sales guys, that's great. You're going you're gonna to yeah. generate a lot of leads, but I don't think that's what it's about. I don't think that's what we And are. as you and I both know, appraisal is about at the end of the day, that relationship, right? So the more and more you do them, the easier and easier they get. I mean, I've had appraisal files. I just had two that I settled like a week and a half ago. We went back for the appraisal inspection. If I was at the house 10 minutes, it's five minutes too much. Um, the opposing appraiser was someone I've known now for over 10 years. Um, literally walked in the house, took pictures in the affected areas, sent them my ESX for both files. Done. And I had the award back within a week. 
I was so happy. I forgot when it was, but when well, there was one day that we were talking about appraisals and I had been saying that appraisals was so relationship based and you had said it one time and I, I forgot when it was, but I was just like, see, exactly. Like, that's what it's about. Like appraisals are just, it's usually veteran guys or girls. But what I tell the new public adjusters also, I'm like, do it. Like, just go like, you know, pay your dues in the beginning. You're going to see a lot of the appraisers again and again eventually and i mean yeah i got burned one time and this is the other thing is that people are all so afraid to go to appraisal because they're worried that once the appraisal award is signed it's done same thing goes for a release by the way same thing goes for if you go to litigation and they end up settling for half of your estimate anyway or whatever it is well that's gonna get really interesting now in july with the changes coming so it's funny you say that half of your estimate that's that ball game is changing drastically my friend i'm glad I'm glad writing an estimate that doesn't make sense. I think you're going to be gone very soon. I settled an estimate, uh, an appraisal for a PA the other day for half of what he wrote and he was totally okay with it. And I'm like, you shouldn't be okay with that. I mean, I couldn't get any more, but you shouldn't be okay with settling for half of your estimate. I mean, I truly, truly really never settle for less than 80%. And that's, that's an accurate estimate. That's me just saying, Hey, you know what? Willing to give up a little bit so that we can get this right. thing you're, resolved. You're making concessions for the betterment of the claim to get it settled for your client because cash's hand is better than waiting a year to get an extra two or three thousand dollars, right? Not, so or not, you're making or a up, smart decision for your client or settle for the same amount. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I tell clients all the time. I say, listen, I can go to the umpire, but the umpire is going to have additional fees, and at the end of the day, I'm arguing over such a minimal amount of money that it makes no sense. The net to you when it's all said and done might take an extra six months and you're going to end up with the same daughter value. I had that conversation yesterday with a guy, the exact same conversation. I'm like, look, we may get a couple thousand more. I said, but you're probably looking at another year because <laughs> we're going to have to go to litigation or, you know, make it a, you may get a couple thousand dollars more in appraisal or whatever it is, or you may not. And you're going to have to wait a few months. I mean, this is a pretty good offer. We're pretty good where we're at. What is the new laws? Explain. Um, well, there, you know, there's some changes coming in now in July. I think, uh, I think some of it's been talked in your Facebook group about it. Um, some of the small changes are, you know, requirements for cancellation of a contract and some of that stuff. Some of the advertising is going to change a little bit for the adjusters and, and roofers as to how they can solicit for some business. But I think one of the big, big changes that's coming down our path is for the attorney's fees. Um, these attorney's fees are now going to be based off of what are they able to recoup based off of the estimated, um, claim. So if you've got a $10,000 claim and the adjuster wrote a $100,000 estimate and that claim settles for $25,000 to give you an example, well, guess what? That law firm is no longer entitled to their fees. So that's going to be a very big deal. The days of, like you just said, you gave me an estimate for hundred grand and I settled it for 50, that attorney is now going to evaluate and look at that estimate prior to entering into litigation because it's going to affect whether they have an entitlement to fees or not. Um, so it's, it's pretty dangerous what's going to happen now. If I think it's going to, you and I have talked about it a little bit off camera, right? That it, at the end of the day, I don't think it affects us the way that we do our stuff. Um, because I don't think we write anything that's you write You write right? what you see. People you write what you see. Write and you write the right way to fix see. it. I see a lot of estimates where, there's a stain in the ceiling in a hundred percent, hundred percent. And all of a sudden 
all the drop the entire ceiling is being replaced and so is all the walls and oh that's right and and remove and replace light fixtures <laughs> you know so it's like what and, and you look at these estimates i I've, right. i've got an appraisal file right now that i'm finalizing the settlement on it and it was a big file to be honest with you we worked on it for about a year uh as commercial claim from irma that we basically are taking it from under deductible the carrier was at between the four buildings i think they were around $90,000 and right now we're close to $750,000 in damages um but i got a 1. something 1.4 million dollar estimate um and part of the issue that we're having is that 1.4 million dollar estimate half uh some of the roofs have already been replaced for less so than what on the have. estimate the roofs were at about $600,000 and the guy spent about $300,000 on one on one roof mm -hmm. when you total it up through all the roofs guess what my 1.4 just became 900,000 you bad. know and i'm at 750 so now we're arguing over pennies right it's what are you what are you going to i mean it's not over pennies but you know what i mean you're interior, arguing over interior minor damages. things to get to that 900,000 but the pa is like well, i need a, i need a million dollars because my estimate's 1.4 And guess what? We're, you're never going to get there now. And the problem was is because they replaced the roofs for less than the amount that you wrote up. Correct. But it's a very complicated. You know, see, I don't think you have to deal with that much. As us as PAs, we get the question all the time from clients like, "Hey, can I do the repairs? Hey, can I do all the repairs?" And I'm just like, "I can't tell you no because right. it's your home. Like, I I feel so terrible." if I were to tell you, no, that's just not right. I said, but understand that, you know, we are claiming all the floors in your house and a full roof replacement. And if you decide to completely gut your house and do it, I mean, that's going to be an issue. You're going to have to show me some invoices. I said, if you do a minor repair, I mean, that's okay. But if you just decide to gut your whole house, that's, you know, and it becomes less than what our estimate is, that's what we're going to have to settle for. Plus you're going to have to pay my fee. Right. And at the end of the day, truthfully, I mean, it doesn't happen often because most people don't have the ability to do that, right? It only happens once in a while. Um, but yeah, right? I mean, in the appraisal stage, sometimes people are like, can I make the changes before this gets done? I thought, if you've waited this far to get to appraisal, um, all you're going to do is limit your potential uh, settlement award. Because if you fix it today and I come back in a week with the appraiser and we were asking for 20 and you got it done for 10, you just took $10,000 off of my negotiating ability, right? Because maybe I wasn't going to get you 20, but maybe I can get you 15. You know, and then I, I've got people go, oh, well, if they're only going to spend 10, they shouldn't be entitled to that extra five. And I tell people all the time, but you don't know the other concessions I'm going to have to make as a part of that negotiation. So yes, maybe they're getting an extra $5,000 for something here, but I'm having to concede something else that they maybe should have gotten, but it's a negotiation So maybe I got them five grand more here on something I couldn't have gotten them over that I didn't get them somewhere else. And at the end of the day, you're balancing out that claim because it's, it's a negotiation and, and there's times that they overpay for stuff, but underpay for other stuff. So you're looking at the totality of the claim. Does that number make sense? And guys on the other side tell you this all the time. And I can't pay you for that. I don't know if you've heard that before. I can't pay you for that but I'm going to make it up to you over here because I think I can give you this and this, and we're getting to the number that makes sense for you. Right. And I, like you said, the supervisor hours, God, people argue about supervisor hours. So annoying. All the time. It's annoying. All the time. Why know? would, so, why would, he's a contractor. I, I had, why would he need I a supervisor? 
He's a contractor. Why would he need a supervisor? I don't know. Maybe he's got like 50 projects and he needs people to freaking look over it. Like, get out of here with that. And it's, well, you know, the argument that can also be made is it's not even necessarily for the contractor. You as the owner are, not, are entitled to hire an owner rep. And those supervisor hours can actually be uh, given towards the homeowner hiring an owner rep to oversee the general contractor. So that's usually how I argue for the, the, the supervisory hours. I'm not arguing that the contractor is getting that money for supervisory hours. I make the argument that the homeowner is entitled to hire an owner rep to oversee the general contractor so that the homeowner does not have to be burdened with following up with that contractor on a daily basis to find out what's going on. Ooh, I like that. That's good. That makes perfect sense. So, yeah, and you're actually entitled to do so. The, there are certain municipalities that even actually recommend it. Um, Miami-Dade County actually even tells you you're allowed to have an owner rep. So I, I use those supervisory hours towards an owner rep, not that the contractor's being paid to supervise the project. The homeowner's being paid to hire an independent person to oversee the contractor. What about the bullshit that they say that uh, roofers or roof replacement, they're not allowed to O&P? How do, you, how do you feel about that? I, mean, I think that's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that people argue about it all the time. Um, I always make the argument that if, which is, I think, the least path of resistance. Um, I don't know how that roof is going to be put on that house. I don't know if the homeowner is hiring a roofer independently or if the homeowner is hiring a contractor and the contractor is going to oversee the entire project and sub out the portion of the roofing to a licensed roofer. If the work gets done in that manner, the overhead and profit is allowed on the roof because it's being handled through the general contractor. There's also a bunch and of statutes too. There's zero argument that can be made about, about that. We've got so a I bunch, always find that to be the least path of resistance. We've got a bunch of written stuff that we that we provide them and let them know, like, look, buddy, this is this is what I, it is what it is. Um, yeah, I mean, just I, I I've been told now, and you know, since we do appraisal and umpire work, right? You get to peel behind the veil and get some of the stuff that the day-to-day -day guy doesn't see. And we talk amongst the umpires and, you know, we know what the codes are. Like a lot of the stuff that we see on the PPE stuff or the OSHA requirements, right? We get these estimates all the time that put all these OSHA stuff on there and they add sometimes an extra 10 or $15,000 in, in value to an estimate. Um, and it doesn't always apply. Some of the OSHA requirements that get put on there, um, actually have nothing to do with rebuilding. Some of them actually are just for new construction. Um, um, so they're not always. Yeah, but safety, um, I mean, safety is important and you gotta, you gotta make sure that you're following those guidelines to make sure everything's right. safe. And then a lot of the times they make that argument that, well, the OSHA requirements are truthfully only if the contractor pulls a permit. Mm. So technically those OSHA requirements are just like the permit cost. Typically you don't get the permit cost unless you show that a permit was pulled for the work. Right. Um, a lot of people make that same interpretation for OSHA. Those OSHA requirements are only if the licensed general contractor is pulling a permit for that job. There's a guy that we met. He wasn't at when he was at, uh, at the, like he told me it was in Galveston. Galveston. Yeah. We talked killer. about it. Your OSHA specialist. Dude, an OSHA specialist. And I was going to use him. I don't want to talk about it. I was going to use him on one of our claims and they, they decided not to. I'm like, you're crazy. But anyway, um, he just charges like, you know, a flat fee. 
And he's able to come up. I mean, he's like, I think he's like licensed. He's like level 38,000 something in OSHA or something, some crazy number. And, um, and he's able to come up with, you know, a lot more money on your estimate that's perfectly legitimate and perfectly arguable and, you know, needs to be paid in order to make sure that that roof that's being replaced or whatever work is being done is done safely and done properly, you know? And I think that's, that, that could become very valuable if you're trying to, to, you know, trying to get as much money as possible on some of these claims that they're beating you down on. So, um, appraisals. I love appraisals and people are always afraid of them. What I'm getting trouble now here in Florida, it's not like this in the rest of the country. Good for them. The agreeing to go to appraisal has been an absolute nightmare for me. Yep. I'm actually thinking I've been, I've been telling Tammy that we need to change the way we request appraisal. Uh, cause in an email, it's like, Oh, we expect to hear from you from 20 days in 20 days. And then they're just like, you know what? Screw you next day rejecting. And I'm just like, all right, let's not do that anymore. Let's maybe request it. Let's say, Hey, look, what can we do to try to figure this out? We've tried everything already. Do you mind if we could please try this in appraisal? And I'm going to see how it goes. Cause that's been very annoying. Cause then I have to go yeah, to mediation I, and I freaking hate mediation. I think you go the route of trying to negotiate it. Right. And when you get to that point where you no longer feel that there's any useful conversations happening with the other side, you know, you say, look, your policy provisions allow for re resolution of this claim through the appraisal process. Um, I think we've reached our point of negotiations where neither one of us are willing to, to compromise any further, but we still feel there's large discrepancies that need to be addressed and you invoke the appraisal process. Problem is some of these carriers have now changed their language. I know uh, universal, for example, you can no longer just arbitrarily demand appraisal right uh, they have it in their policies now that it has to be agreed upon by both parties it's not just universal it's, it's most of them yeah yeah universal's trying to tell you oh nope we're not going to go to appraisal we're going to go through mediation mm -hmm. um and i i tell people the minute they tell you no to appraisal mediation you tell them okay we're going to send it to litigation and see what they want to do yep um i think that's the I don't want to see the threat, but I think that's the the route that you have to go if you're having issues with mitigation with the the appraisal process. Uh, advise the carrier that you're not obligated to agree to their mediation, and if they don't want to resolve it through appraisal, then you have no choice but to go through the litigation process, and they're going to expose themselves to potential greater losses and fees. Right. Right. You know, yeah. but I mean, again, usually I think part of the reasons the the carriers have strayed away from some of these appraisals is they know that these appraisers are doing the right thing. Um, and these appraisers are willing to give things that they feel should have been given originally. Um, and there's a lot of times that these appraisers, I just had an appraiser for a personal friend. He's actually an insurance company IA. Um, and I handled the appraisal for him at his house. And it was a real simple matter. He had a shower pan leak. It affected a hallway bathroom or a bedroom bathroom. The uh, engineered hardwood floors in the house got damaged. They wrote the bare minimum for the floors, no baseboards, no paint, like no content manipulation, none of that stuff, right? Um, the kitchen cabinets sat on top of the engineered floors. It was also on the shared wall where the bathroom was. So there was some question as to whether the back of cabinets got damaged or not. Um, but at a minimum, the cabinets were going to have to be detached and reset. Um, carrier didn't allow for any of it. Uh, the cabinets had quartz counters or marble and they were glued on to the cabinets. So guess we what? We know what you that can't means. DNR those cabinets. They're going to have to get replaced. But the appraiser that got appointed by the carrier 
super nice guy. And I only, honestly, I'd only dealt with him once before and truthfully had been like four or five years ago. So I knew him, but I didn't like know him, know him. And we spoke on the phone for maybe about a 15 minute conversation. I sent him over the ESX with everything sketched. I sent him all the pictures that I had and I sent him the pictures showing that you could see from underneath the cabinets that the stuff was glued on. I think the estimate that we prepared for the appraisal was for like $115,000. He came back a week later offering us 106. Never went to the house. Oh, careful. Don't say that. <laughs> well, no. I mean, he, he, he said there was no dispute on the, on the items. All the areas were agreed upon. And you showed me with documentation that the cabinets are glued on. He goes, the measurements are right. He goes, the measurements, apparently the carrier had taken measurements of the cabinets, but not included them. Of course not. So he verified my measurements against the carrier's estimate. Yep. That he got a copy of. He goes, give us an offer. We settled the claim within a week. Yeah, I used to, I remember when I first started, I used to just, even if the, the cabinets weren't damaged, if the floors were going underneath the cabinets, I'd put the remove and replace and all that stuff. And then I got to the point where I'm like, you know what? The cabinets aren't damaged. I'm just going to put the detach and reset. And then I almost always put the remove and replace the, um, the countertops, but they always give me shit about that too. Which makes no sense, right? I mean, you're going to, and I say, they're going to give you crap about it, but guess what? The appraiser is going to give it to you because mm -hmm. most appraisers know. And what I, I always say, there's theory, there's book theory, and then there's the actual applicable way that things happen on the field. Um, I was being deposed the other day and I had the opposing carriage attorney ask me, why are you doing two coats of paint? Oh. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know. But I said, ma'am, have you ever had to paint your house? I said, typically when you paint, you're always going to have to put on a second coat, right? So, and I, I use the explanation in theory, it sounds great that you could paint everything with one coat, but in the practice in the real world application, you're always going to have to put on a second coat. And I said, and by the way, if you read the manufacturer's suggested um, installation of their product on the back of the paint can, it suggests you put two coats of paint on. I go, so it's not that I want to put on two coats of paint. It's that the company who's selling me the product is suggesting that I put on two coats of paint. Uh, I painted a house before. Uh, and I, I, trust me, I wish I could have just stopped at one coat. Sometimes you don't can't stop at two coats. Something takes three or four. Let's Ugh, be honest. Sucks. I hate so it's like we want to argue over pennies sometimes that on stuff that it just doesn't make sense. And it's sometimes a pointless conversation because I say to my, I tell people all the time, if the desk adjuster doesn't want to concede a coat of paint to you, you're going to get it in appraisal. You're going to get it down the road. So don't butt your head on something you're going to get later anyway. Well, I think it's funny. <laughs> The way you and I talk about claims, it's just way different than the way people on Facebook and people online talk about claims. Like they're just always just they're they're always is funny is what I always find funny about when we talk about claims is they're always just like nitpicking about all these freaking line items and all these things and the kind of shingle and the this and that and all this crap. And I'm every time I look at a lot of this stuff on Facebook, I'm just like, just talk to the adjuster and figure it out like i don't think it makes that big of a difference and then talk to the adjuster figure it out and then talk to your client and say hey here's what we got how do you feel about this uh, and if they come back and say well you're the expert i'm like well i think we're good i think this is where we want to be you know and so if that's I, if the client is happy at the end of the day that's who you need to make happy at the end of the day at the, God, yeah, we say, and, and 
we should go I, through I like you, you have that different mentality right we talk about this i think you're you're working on a claim right now where it's going to be uh they're going to get invoked the right for the vendor to do the work and i think most pas will just immediately run away from it and say, i'm not going to really make anything off of this i'm done with the claim or they won't even sign it up at all um and i know you're still working on trying to make sure that even if they invoke that right to repair that the homeowner gets taken care of right you're still trying to do the right thing for the homeowner because Maybe you didn't make what you were going to make on this file, but by taking care of that person and making sure that they're taking care of property, guess what? That person is going to refer you to somebody else. You're going to refer you to somebody else and it's going to pay dividends down the road because you did the right thing for the homeowner. And I think sometimes people look at the claim in terms of, well, if I can see those things, I'm only going to make this That's... on a claim as opposed to, can the homeowner actually get everything fixed? Can the homeowner get everything fixed? That's what counts. You know, that's what counts. If I get this guy this amount of money, can he actually do what needs to be done? Or even if he makes a concession, if I'm making the concessions, can he take care of the majority of what needs to be done? Because at the end of the day, we all know that there's always things that can be careful because we can't talk like that because on social media, it's ridiculous. And then what happens is, is now we're going back to what we are. You and I have the, obviously a very similar strategy and we're trying to get along with the other side. If you're constantly fighting and fighting, you're building up this animosity towards everybody on the other side. And in my opinion, it's just going to hurt you in the long run. Yep. And, and listen, you, you've got to be careful with estimates, right? I know that there's in some States that, um, if you make modifications to the pricing on that estimate, and you don't have justification why you made that modification to that estimate, the state can actually charge you with fraud. Mm -hmm. um, there's some states that will go that route. So you've got to, you know, I know guys go in and, and add extra percentages here and, and blow up the number this way. Um, and I always say, you can put anything, you can put pen to paper on anything, right? Just because I wrote a $100,000 estimate doesn't mean that that's the damages that are there. So, you know, we, we always talk about you got to have a good narrative, you got to have a good story, but it's got to just make sense. And, you know, I, I see stuff on these estimates sometimes where guys are removing it and reinstalling it then cleaning it, then well, sealing it, then putting it in new. And it's like, how many different things are you doing to this tile? And none of it makes sense. Proof of loss. I was asked yesterday, hey, if I have a proof of loss of say $20,000 and things come up and we have to write for more, is that okay? I said, absolutely, that is okay. It's the other way around that you can't do it. If you write a proof of loss for $20,000 and then you decide that you're going to take stuff off or it's going to be lower than that, now you have the chance of getting um, accused of fraud because you wrote stuff in your original estimate that should not have been there to begin with. That's not good. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's got to make sense. And, and you know, it's got to be documented, right? So like, I, I, I did a claim where I was the umpire not too long ago. And there was stuff on the file in the claim that wasn't continuous, right? There was areas of the home that were included for damages to floors. Line of sight? They were different. Huh? Line of sight? Different materials. So it wasn't even the same flooring. It's not even so much that there was a threshold is there was different types of floors. Um, they were both laminate, but they weren't the same type, right? So like one was a, one had a pattern to it, one didn't, one was, there were different colors, you know? So it was like, I get it. You put stuff in your estimates because everybody wants to try to maximize the claim. But at the end of the day, like the opposing appraiser is not going to give it to you. 
and a, an umpire is not going to potentially give it to you. So what you're doing is not creating a false narrative for that homeowner. Because if that homeowner sees your claim, your estimate at $75,000 and you end up settling it for 40, now not only do you got to explain why you settled it for 40, now you got to explain why didn't you get me that extra money that you, you told me you were going to get on your estimate. And it just creates a more awkward conversation. And sometimes it creates a more difficult time to negotiate with the other side if you're trying to get things that are potentially unreasonable. Yeah, and then I, I, I get it all the time from field adjusters when I'm talking. They always like my estimates. They always like what I present because what we see is what I write up. And they're always talking about, well, it's not like a lot of PA estimates that I see. Uh, at least where, where they, I'm like, well, tell me about it. What are they like? He's like, Vince, they'll just write up the whole house just to write up the whole house. They'll just write up all the flooring, all the walls, all the paint, all the ceilings, all everything, and just throw it all in there. You know, this is the reason why these laws pass is because you've got your, you've got your bad apples every once in a while. And, you know, the insurance company and legislative, they want to, like, just point this out as, like, a huge problem, which, in my opinion, I don't think it's a huge problem, but they want to sort of make it, make it look like it. And then they'll start passing these laws, and then it, it makes life a little bit difficult for a lot of people, but mainly for the bad apples, I would say. And I, th I, think, I think we'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the main changes that I think I kind of disagree with is they're now the statute is what you can only have two years to open up the claim as opposed to three. I think right. that could be potentially problematic for the homeowner. Um, you get a lot of people that have no idea what's going on in their house until, you know, an adjuster or somebody jumps up on the roof and says, hey, you got broken tiles or you got misplaced tiles. So that could potentially be, be complicated. Um, in fairness, but, after uh, in fairness, after two years and people are signing new like Irma claims, I was like, yeah, that's a stretch. It is. It, it can be a stretch, right? I mean, at the end of the day, sometimes you've got elderly people. Sometimes the damages don't show up until you have one of these bad rainstorm again, and all of a sudden, those minor tiles that maybe shifted during a storm that wasn't catastrophic. You know, we're not. I'm not trying to tell you that the entire roof flew off and you didn't know about it for two years. That doesn't make sense. But there's many instances where, yeah, these tiles shifted. You know, the water didn't originally penetrate through um, through them being constantly beat for a year or two of the typical weather down here. You get another bad storm, and now that shift in the tile may have caused something to get exposed. And throughout that sunlight, throughout that rain, it starts to leak in. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, crap, this actually happened back then. I didn't know. I didn't realize it. Again, did it maybe take you three years to figure that out? I don't know. Maybe it held up. Maybe it didn't. But it's going to be difficult now for some of these homeowners uh, to potentially open up their claims. But it's what always happened. The same thing happened in 2005. You know, the pendulum shifts, right? Whenever you have uh, a storm come comes through, the carriers cry, "Oh my God, we're losing everything. We're we're completely going under because of the amount of claims that we're getting." And you know, I always say, you insured a house. You knew the condition of that home. A natural catastrophe happens, you come out, and then you want to claim wear and tear on the roof. Hold on a second. You insured my home. You priced my insurance based on the age of that roof, and you were aware of whatever condition that roof was in. How is it that after the storm hits, now I have wear and tear, but I didn't four months ago when you insured my policy? Can you tell me the difference between wear and tear and depreciation? Hello? Right. What the hell is depreciation oh. if not wear and tear? No. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I get it. You know, sometimes, and, and it's like you said, it's the bad apples, right? So 
I've gotten stuff where I'm, you know, contractors, roofers are like, no, we'll take care of the entire claims process for you. And it's like the homeowner doesn't know what's going on. I had somebody the other day tell me that, you know, the, the roofer was asking them for an AOB so that to handle the claim in its entirety. And I said, look, don't do that. You're not going to get paid. That money's going to go to the roofer, you know, and, and you're going to have no control over your claim. You know, it was somebody that was a friend of an attorney and they called me because they couldn't get a hold of the attorney because I also knew the attorney. And I said, listen, hold on. Speak to so-and-so. Don't sign any paperwork. You're going to potentially jeopardize the way that you can get your claim paid. Yeah, work authorizations are, are pretty common. That's okay. When the roofer goes, hey, look, you know, uh, you've got your damage. You've got this and that. We'll write up an estimate. You know, we'll replace your roof only. Uh, but, you know, when you get into the interior damage, you get into ALE, you get into personal property damage, stuff like that. That's when a public adjuster is going to be very beneficial, you know? 100%. And you're referring to a work order from a reputable roofer. There's a lot of guys that put in AOB language into that work order. And if the homeowner doesn't read it properly, well, they thought they were signing a work order, but it's actually an AOB because the language in it. I saw that the other day. Gives them the assignment of benefit. I saw it the other day. Yeah. So, you know, we make the assumption a lot of times that guys are just going to do the right thing, but there's a lot of people that don't. So it, it, it can get tricky for homeowners. Um, you sound like you're just, from Miami. <laughs> yeah, it's Miami. <laughs> I had a comment on YouTube the other day. I forgot what video it was or whatever. And he's just like, be careful. You've got snakes in the water. And I'm just like, dude, I'm from Miami. I've been swimming. I've been swimming with snakes my whole life. I'm a snake charmer. Don't worry about it, buddy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so now that you're an expert, Mario, um, now I know you love appraisals. Uh, uh, you're on my umpire list as well. Um, I don't know. What's next on the horizon for Mr. Mario Rios? The expert, not only in claims, but the expert commercial claims advocate as well. That's right. Well, I, I think, you know, joining this, uh, this, getting on this ride with you has been actually uh, invigorating. You know, you do this for a certain amount of time and it just becomes like a monotonous, day -day right? Monogamous, right? I mean, yes. it's exciting at times because I'm not in an office. You said monogamous. experiencing new said, claims, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it just became very mundane. It was the same thing every day. Being a part of this has been a little bit invigorating. Um, it, it's, uh, it's helped me kind of find, I would say, a little bit of a new purpose. Nice. We kind of are doing more stuff uh, amongst ourselves, right? We're collaborating more. We're speaking on a daily basis. Me, you, certain of the other people in the class will call me sometimes with questions. You know, uh, the water make guys. I'm talking to more attorneys on a regular basis. We've gone to a couple conferences together. Um, you know, we're networking with the guys on the other side, you know, uh, talking to the engineers. And it, it just kind of lets us know that, one, we're on the right path, two, the path, um, can be longer and, and greater than I think we originally thought it could be. Uh, I have the the joy where I get to do stuff not only in Florida, I get to do stuff for people in California. I've done stuff for you and other people in Texas. I've done stuff in New York. Uh, I've written some things in Louisiana. So it, it's um, it's nice because you get to see the different way that claims are handled. And it's not the same in every state. There's different regulations in every state. There's a different process in every place. So you, you get to kind of get a greater idea of how things work. Um, and again, I always like to try to know the other side because the more I know about the other side, the more it's going to help us uh, help the homeowner, right? So I, I, I am the, the greatest thing that I think is, you know, build relationships with the other side. Man. Those, those are invaluable down the road. 
And, and that's what I'm looking forward to is to continue to build these relationships. I'm glad that you mentioned though. Like, yeah, it's the same for me, man. Like starting all this stuff, it was the job does get a little bit just monotonous after a while. Cause it's basically every claim is different, but sort of the same. And I feel like after you're doing this for 10 or 11 or 12 years, it's just like, okay, now, because really the only, I feel like the only way you go, I mean, it's different for you, but for PAs, it's just hiring PAs. That's really the only direction you can go in is to grow your business, hire PAs under you, and then that's pretty much it. But when we started this whole commercial claims advocate thing, now what we're doing is we're really giving back to the industry you know, really providing value to all these upcoming PAs. I remember when I asked one of the guys on, on our, in our company, I'm like, what do you think? What do you think? Would you be interested if like someone were to come out and provide PA knowledge? Mind you, this guy's been a PA for like eight or nine years. And he's like, honestly, Vince, he's like, I probably wouldn't watch a lot of this stuff. I probably wouldn't care to watch a lot of it. He's like, but it probably would be pretty valuable. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. We're just going to go for it. And it's been pretty, yeah, it's been pretty fun, man. It's been yeah, really fun. It has. It absolutely has. And again, it, it, the PA world can sometimes, especially if you're not for working at a big firm, it's a little bit lonely industry. It right? is. It, everybody's kind of fending for themselves. Everybody's competing for clients. You know, so a lot of times guys only really interact when there's like an attorney that's putting together a seminar to educate you on potential changes in the industry. That's really the only time that I would see PAs get together. I never went to a, 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 I never went to any kind of conference or any kind of educational event or anything, anything at all until I started doing this. Yeah. And I mean, on the estimating side, right? Like there's nothing, oh, you there's know, nothing. there is really <laughs> bare bones in terms of teaching you how to write these estimates. Um, most of the classes from the, the companies like the Xactimates and disabilities and stuff, it's teaching you how to use the software. But, but not it's not teaching how you how to write, write the actual estimate. estimates. Exactly. You know, and you know, I, I tell people all the time, I mean, I learned because I sat in these great uh, building department classes. And you sit there and you learn as to how the building departments require you to do these estimates uh, for the work or how the contractors are required to do work. Um, but there's no real estimate training programs on our side. And even I think the stuff that the IAs get they are more, I don't even want to say that they're trained. They're more regulated in terms of what they can write For sure. as opposed to being trained. Because a lot of the stuff that we write on the cares, we get rejections because we replaced the entire baseboards in a room as opposed to the five linear feet that are damaged. And they only want us to replace the five linear feet that they see that's visibly damaged. So they're not even being trained. They're being, I want to say, handcuffed in terms of what they can write. So as I'm sitting with you here, I actually saw that I got a rejection on one of my estimates for the carrier work. So I got to open it up and see what they want me to take off uh, that they didn't agree with. I like how you mentioned the difference between using the software and actually writing an estimate. Those are definitely two different things. You know, I mean, writing the software is one thing, but making sure that, like we said, if the floors go underneath the cabinets, you're DNRing the cabinets, but you're RNRing the, ca the, the countertops. Uh, you're replacing all of the baseboards when the floors go underneath the baseboards because you're not going to be a things like that that you need to know uh, from experience, from, from some construction knowledge and stuff like that, that, you know, are, are not just about actually using the software, but making sure you're putting in all the proper line items to get the proper settlement that you need. That's very important. And, and guys on the other side, the good guys on the other side, well, actually, some of that stuff was taught to me. Some of that stuff was taught to me by the adjusters and the appraisers on the other side. Hey, Mario, look, when we do it, here's what we look for and here's what I can get away with. And I don't want to say get away with, but here's what I can justify. Sure. If I could show it this way, 
the carrier's not going to kick it back. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's how it is with the, and that goes for the field adjusters that goes for the, the preferred vendors that they've got, the mitigation companies that they send out, the preferred contractors that they send out people's trust and all of them, like all those guys are very limited on what they can do. And I mean, it's consistent work and it's what I tell the field adjusters too. Cause now that I've got the YouTube channel and all this stuff, when I go out to the inspections, I'm like, dude, check out my stuff. Come on, come to our site, come via PA, man. Um, you know, I understand the consistent work and for some people that's obviously very important, but man, it's gotta be tough as a vendor, as a field adjuster, anybody working on the carrier side, when you've got to be so limited to what you're writing and what you're doing, you know, the consistent I mean, work I, is good, but I oh just wrote God. one the other day where we wrote for the replacement of the kitchen cabinets. And then after everything went back into the vendor and was writing for one of my vendors is a GC, uh, it goes back into the carrier and the carrier says, Oh wait, by the way, never mind. You can't replace the cabinets. We think we can match them. Uh, here's a, uh, an estimate from the cabinet company that says they think they can match it. So remove all the all the cabinets off of your estimate, and you're only allowed to charge a 500 management fee. We're going to send out a company to try to match the uh, the cabinets. And I said, well, why are you even sending the contractor? I had five linear feet cabinet replacement the other day and refacing doors when there was like 12 linear feet of lower cabinets. So it was five linear feet and then refacing doors. It was just weird. I don't know. How yeah. Was... And I, I see it all the time too. It takes more labor. Sometimes if you reface it properly, it can be as expensive as replacement, right? You, you and I are just numbers guys, right? So yeah, I know. But YouTube, yeah. YouTube refacing cabinets. That is not an easy process. No. And, <laughs> and a lot of times the way that it's written, they basically just go, Oh, we're just going to reface the cabinet. Well, no, all these cabinets that you're replacing need to be detached and reset. Mm -hmm. All the hardware needs to be reinstalled. There's, it's not just based on square footage. You're going to have to add additional labor hours for the cabinet specialist that's going to come in to do the work. That shit is hard, If you're man. refacing it, you're going to have to figure out still what you're doing with that countertop. So there's times that if you do it properly, not just, oh, it's 30 square feet of cabinetry. We're going to reface 30 square feet. Well, no, hold on a second. That's not how you write it. You got to know the actual process. So there's times that I've conceded. Okay, cool. Let's reface you it. make up for it somewhere else. Like you said, we're numbers guys. Let's just get to a number that we're happy with. I had one, the flood, the flood that we had, it was costing more in labor to detach and reset all of the um, knobs on the cabinets and detach and reset all of the outlets. Uh, literally the contractor that they hire is saying it's going to take us more time to detach and reset and save and not lose any of the little screws and this and that, as opposed to just throwing it all away and just putting new ones. It's just much easier for us. And that labor, literally they're charging the association more money in labor to do that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, and there's times that, so a lot of times, let's say you're doing these kitchens and they argue with you about, um, Hey, why are you replacing the, the P-trap? Or why are you replacing the angle stop and the uh, plumbing supply lines? Well, guess what? You paid for the cabinets, right? It's all coming in brand new. Do you know what that contractor is going to tell you? I'm not going to warranty my work if I've got to use what was here before. So if that was, if I have to reuse those materials, I can't warranty my work. Ugh, and just like all those like P-trap and stuff. I mean, used material. Like, come on, just put a new one on. It costs like next to nothing in Home Depot just the to get The price difference is minimal. I mean, <laughs> no. it really, sometimes it's 15 bucks. Yeah. But they want a nickel and dime you over $15. And I thought, well, listen, I can't warranty the work for the new cabinets. The contractor won't do it. 
So I need to have new materials for the under for the, the plumbing supplies. And they usually have to give it to you. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Mario, thank you for coming on. Hey, man. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. I'll see you uh, soon. I know we got another class coming up and let's continue to help PAs make some more money and help clients, man. Yeah, man. Um, remember, everyone, Mario is an expert in all sorts of ways. So if you want to hire him for expert services, he is the guy. And he's also an umpire. I would suggest that if you live and you are a PA in the state of Florida, put him on your list. And I mean, that's it. I'm going to do the introduction in the beginning anyway. Why am I doing that? I don't even know. I don't know. Did I even, I, Plan Preparation Experts is the name of the company. You can always find me through Vince. I'm easy to get a hold of. <laughs> Um, and we're always collaborating, spitting ideas off of one another when we got claims. So I talked to Vince a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> a lot more lately too. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Mario. Thanks brother. Appreciate it, man. All right, brother. See I'll you see you later. soon, man. Yeah. Bye. Bye.